Liquid Picnic Productions presents An Ideal Husband by Oscar Wilde Directed by John McQueen and Harris Williamson Act 3 The Library in Lord Goring's House Got my second buttonhole for me, Phipps? Yes, my lord. Rather distinguished thing, Phipps. I'm the only person of the smallest importance in London at present who wears a buttonhole. Yes, my lord, I have observed that. You see, Phipps, fashion is what one wears oneself. What is unfashionable is what other people wear. Yes, my lord. Just as vulgarity is simply the conduct of other people. Yes, my lord. And falsehoods the truth of other people. Yes, my lord. Other people are quite dreadful. The only possible society is oneself. Yes, my lord. To love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance, Phipps. <laughs> yes, my lord. Don't think I quite like this buttonhole, Phipps. Makes me look a little too old. Makes me almost in the prime of life, eh, Phipps? I don't observe any alteration in your lordship's appearance. You don't, Phipps? No, my lord. I am not quite sure. For the future, a more trivial buttonhole, Phipps, on Thursday evenings. I will speak to the florist, my lord. She has had a loss in her family lately, which perhaps accounts for the lack of triviality your lordship complains of in the buttonhole. Extraordinary thing about the lower classes in England. They're always losing their relations. Yes, my lord, they are... Extremely fortunate in that respect. Hum. Any letters, Phipps? Three, my lord. Want my cab round in twenty minutes? Yes, my lord. <clears throat> Phipps, when did this letter arrive? Uh, it was brought by hand just after your lordship went to the club. That will do. Lady Chilton's handwriting on... Lady Chilton's pink notepaper. That is rather curious. I thought Robert was to write. Wonder what Lady Chilton has got to say to me. I want you. I trust you. I am coming to you, Gertrude. I want you. I trust you. I am coming to you. So she has found out everything. Poor woman. Poor woman. But what an hour to call? Ten o'clock. I shall have to give up going to the Berkshires. However, it is always nice to be expected and not to arrive. I'm not expected at the bachelor's, so I shall certainly go there. Well, I will make her stand by her husband. That is the only thing for her to do. That is the only thing for any woman to do. It is the growth of the moral sense in women that makes marriage such a Hopeless, one-sided institution. Ten o'clock. She should be here soon. I must tell Phipps I am not into anyone else. Lord Caversham. Oh, why will parents always appear at the wrong time? Some extraordinary mistake in nature, I suppose. Delighted to see you, my dear father. Take my cloak off. Is it worthwhile, father? Of course it is worthwhile, sir. 
Which is the most comfortable chair? This one, Father. It's the chair I use myself when I have visitors. Thank ye. No draught, I hope, in this room? No, Father. Glad to hear it. Can't stand draughts. No draughts at home? Good many breezes, Father. Eh? Eh? Don't understand what you mean. Want to have a serious conversation with you, sir? My dear father, at this hour... Well, sir, it is only ten o'clock. What is your objection to the hour? I think the hour is an admirable hour. Well, the fact is, father, this is not my day for talking seriously. I am very sorry, but it is not my day. What do you mean, sir? During the season, Father, I only talk seriously on the first Tuesday in every month, from four to seven. Well, make it Tuesday, sir. Make it Tuesday. But it is after seven, Father. And my doctor says I must not have any serious conversation after seven. It makes me talk in my sleep. Talk in your sleep, sir? What does that matter? You are not married. No, Father, I am not married. Um... That is what I have come to talk to you about, sir. You have to get married and at once. Why, when I was your age, sir, I had been an inconsolable widower for three months and was already paying my addresses to your admirable mother. Damn, sir, it is your duty to get married. You can't always be living for pleasure. Every man of position is married nowadays. Bachelors are not fashionable anymore. They are a, a damaged lot. Too much is known about them. You must get a wife, sir. Look where your friend Robert Chilton has got by probity and hard work and a sensible marriage with a good woman. Why don't you imitate him, sir? Why don't you take him for your model? I think I shall, father. I wish you would, sir. Then I should be happy. At present, I make your mother's life miserable on your account. You are very heartless, sir. Very heartless. I hope not, father. And it is high time for you to get married. You are 34 years of age, sir. Yes, father, but I only admit to 32. 31 and a half when I have a really good buttonhole. This buttonhole is not trivial enough. I tell you... You are 34, sir. And there is a draft in your room besides which makes your conduct worse. Why did you tell me there was no draft, sir? I feel a draft, sir. I feel it distinctly. So do I, father. It is a dreadful draft. I will come and see you tomorrow, father. We can talk over anything you like. Let me help you on with your cloak, father. No, sir. I have called this evening for a definite Purpose. And I am going to see it through at all costs to my health or yours. Put down my cloak, sir. Certainly, father. But let us go into another room. There is a dreadful draught in here. Phipps, is there a good fire in the smoking room? Yes, my lord. Come in there, father. Your sneezes are quite heart-rendering. Well, sir... I suppose I have the right to sneeze when I choose. Quite so, Father. I was merely expressing sympathy. Oh, damn sympathy. There is a great deal too much of that sort of thing going on nowadays. I quite agree with you, Father. 
If there were less sympathy in the world, there would be less trouble in the world. That is a paradox, sir. I hate paradoxes. So do I, father. Everybody one meets is a paradox nowadays. It is a great bore. It makes society so obvious. Do you always really understand what you say, sir? Yes, father. If I listen attentively. If you listen attentively. Conceited young puppy. Phipps, there is a lady coming to see me this evening on a particular business. Show her into the drawing room when she arrives. You understand? Yes, my lord. It is a matter of the gravest importance, Phipps. Yes, my lord. No one else is to be admitted under any circumstances. Yes, my lord. Ah, that is probably the lady. I shall see her myself. Well, sir, am I to wait attendance on you? In a moment, father. Do excuse me. Well, remember my instructions. What name, madam? Is Lord Goring not here? I was told he was at home. His lordship is engaged at present with Lord Caversham, madam. How very filial. His lordship told me to ask you, madam, to be kind enough to wait in the drawing room for him. His lordship will come to you there. Lord Goring expects me? Yes, madam. Are you quite sure? His lordship told me that if a lady called, I was to ask her to wait in the drawing room. His lordship's directions on the subject were very precise. How thoughtful of him. To expect the unexpected shows a thoroughly modern intellect. Ugh, oh, how dreary a bachelor's drawing room always looks. I shall have to alter all of this. No, I don't care for that lamp. It's far too glaring. Light some candles. Certainly, madam. I hope the candles have very becoming shades. We have had no complaints about them, madam, as yet. I wonder what woman he's waiting for tonight. It will be delightful to catch him. Men always look so silly when they are caught, and they are always being caught. What a very interesting room. What a very interesting picture. Wonder what his correspondence is like. Oh, what a very uninteresting correspondence. Bills and cards, debts and dowagers. Who on earth writes to him on pink paper? How silly to write on pink paper. It looks like the beginning of a middle-class romance. Romance should never begin with sentiment. It should begin with science and end with a settlement. I know that handwriting. That is Gertrude Chilton's. I remember it perfectly. The Ten Commandments in every stroke of the pen and the moral law all over the page. Wonder what Gertrude is writing to him about. Something horrid about me, I suppose. How I detest that woman. I trust you. I want you. I am coming to you. Gertrude. I trust you. I want you. I'm coming to you. 
The candles in the drawing room are lit, madam, as you directed. Thank you. I trust the shades will be to your liking, madam. They are the most becoming we have. They are the same as his lordship uses himself when he is dressing for dinner. Then I am sure they will be perfectly right. Thank you, madam. My dear father, if I am to get married, surely you'll allow me to choose the time, the place, and the person. Particularly the person. That is a matter for me, sir. You would probably make a very poor choice. It is I who should be consulted, not you. There is property at stake. It is not a matter for affection. Affection comes later on in married life. Yes, in married life, affection comes when people thoroughly dislike each other, Father, doesn't it? Certainly, sir. I mean, certainly not, sir. You're talking very foolishly tonight. What I say is that marriage is a matter for common sense. But women who have common sense are so curiously plain, Father, aren't they? Of course, I only speak from hearsay. No woman, plain or pretty, has any common sense at all, sir. Common sense is the privilege of our sex. Quite so. And we men are so self-sacrificing that we never ever use it, do we, father? I use it, sir. I use nothing else. So my mother tells me. It is the secret of your mother's happiness. You are very heartless, sir. Very heartless. I hope not, father. My dear Arthur, what a piece of good luck meeting you on the doorstep. Your servant had just told me you were not at home. How extraordinary. The fact is, I am horribly busy tonight, Robert, and I gave orders I was not at home to anyone. Even my father, who had a comparatively cold reception, he complained of a draught the whole time. Ah, you must be at home to me, Arthur. You are my best friend. Perhaps by tomorrow you will be my only friend. My wife has discovered everything. Ah. I guessed as much. Really? How? Oh, merely by something in the expression on your face as you came in. Who told her? Mrs. Cheveley herself. And the woman I love knows that I began my career with an act of low dishonesty. That I built up my life upon sands of shame. That I sold, like a common huckster, the secret that had been entrusted to me as a man of honour. I thank heaven poor Lord Radley died without knowing that I betrayed him. I would to God I had died before I had been so horribly tempted or had fallen so low. You have heard nothing from Vienna yet in answer to your wire. Yes, I got a telegram from the First Secretary at eight o'clock tonight. Well? Nothing is absolutely known against her. On the contrary, she occupies a rather high position in society. It is a sort of open secret that Baron Arnheim left to her a great portion of his immense fortune. Beyond that, I can learn nothing. She doesn't turn out to be a spy, then. Oh, spies are of no use nowadays. Their profession is over. The newspapers do their work instead. And thunderingly well they do it. Arthur, I am parched with thirst. M may I ring for something? Some hawk and seltzer? Certainly. Let me. Thanks. I don't know what to do, Arthur. I don't know what to do, and you are my only friend. But what a friend you are. The one friend I can trust. I can trust you absolutely, can't I? My dear Robert, of course. Oh, bring some hock and seltzer. Yes, my lord. And Phipps! Yes, my lord. 
Will you excuse me for a moment, Robert? I want to give some directions to my servant. Certainly. When that lady calls, tell her that I am not expected home this evening. Tell her that I have been suddenly called out of town. You understand? The lady is in that room, my lord. You told me to show her into that room, my lord. You did perfectly right. What a mess I am in. No, I think I shall get through it. I'll give her a lecture through the door. Awkward thing to manage, though. Arthur, tell me what I should do. My life seems to have crumbled about me. I am a ship without a rudder in a night without a star. Robert, you love your wife, don't you? I love her more than anything in the world. I used to think ambition the great thing. It is not. Love is the greatest thing in the world. There is nothing but love, and I love her. But I am defamed in her eyes. I am ignoble in her eyes. There is a wide gulf between us now. She has found me out, Arthur. She has found me out. Has she never in her life done some folly, some indiscretion, that she should not forgive your sin? My wife? Never. She does not know what weakness or temptation is. I am of clay like other men. She stands apart as good women do, pitiless in her perfection, cold and stern and without mercy. But I love her, Arthur. We are childless, and I have no one else to love, no one else to love me. Perhaps if God has sent us children, she might have been kinder to me. But God has given us a lonely house, and she has cut my heart in two. Don't let us talk of it. I, I was brutal to her this evening. But I suppose when sinners talk to saints, they are brutal always. I said to her things that were hideously true on my side, from my standpoint, from the standpoint of men. But don't let us talk of that. Your wife will forgive you. Perhaps at this moment she is forgiving you. She loves you, Robert. Why shouldn't she not forgive? God grant it. God grant it. But there is something more I have to tell you, Arthur. Hawk and seltzer, sir. Thank you. Is your carriage here, Robert? No. I walked from the club. Sir Robert will take my cab, Phipps. Yes, my lord. Robert, you don't mind me sending you away. Arthur, you must let me stay for five minutes. I have made up my mind what I'm going to do tonight in the house. The debate on the Argentine Canal is to begin at eleven. What was that? Nothing. I heard a chair fall in the next room. Someone has been listening. No, no, there is no one there. There is someone there. There are lights in the room, and the door is ajar. Someone has been listening to every secret of my life. Arthur, what does this mean? Robert, you are excited, unnerved. I tell you, there is no one in that room. Sit down, Robert. Do you give me your word that there is no one there? Yes. Your word of honour? Yes. Arthur, let me see for myself. No. No. If there is no one there, why should I not look in that room? Arthur, you must let me go into that room and satisfy myself. Let me know that no eavesdropper has heard my life's secret. Arthur, you don't realise what I'm going through. Robert, this must stop. I have told you that there is no one in that room. That is enough. It is not enough. I insist on going into this room. You have told me that there is no one there. So what reason can you have for refusing me? For God's sake, don't. There is someone there. Someone whom you must not see. Ah, 
I thought so. I forbid you to enter that room. Stand back. My life is at stake, and I don't care who is there. I will know who it is to whom I have told my secret and my shame. Great heavens. His own wife. What explanation have you to give me for the presence of that woman here? Robert, I swear to you on my honour that that lady is stainless and guiltless of all offence towards you. She is a vile, an infamous thing. Don't say that, Robert. It was for your sake she came here. It was to try and save you she came here. She loves you and no one else. You are mad. What have I to do with her intrigues with you? Let her remain your mistress. You're well suited to each other. She corrupt and shameful. You, false as a friend, treacherous as an enemy even. It is not true, Robert. Before heaven, it is not true. In her presence and in yours, I will explain all. Let me pass, sir. You have lied enough upon your word of honour. Good evening, Lord Goring. Mrs. Cheveley. Great heavens. May I ask... What were you doing in my drawing room? Merely listening. I have a perfect passion for listening through keyholes. One always hears such wonderful things through them. Doesn't that sound like rather tempting providence? Oh, surely providence can resist temptation by this time. I am glad you have called. I'm going to give you some good advice. Oh, pray don't. One should never give a woman anything that she can't wear in the evening. I see you are quite as willful as you used to be. Far more. I have greatly improved. I have had more experience. Too much experience is a dangerous thing. Pray, have a cigarette. Half the pretty women in London smoke cigarettes. Personally, I prefer the other half. <laughs> Thanks. I never smoke. My dressmaker wouldn't like it, and a woman's first duty in life is to her dressmaker, isn't it? What the second duty is, no one has as yet discovered. You have come here to sell me Robert Chilton's letter, haven't you? To offer it to you on conditions. How did you guess that? Because you haven't mentioned the subject. Have you got it with you? Oh, no. A well-made dress has no pockets. What is your price for it? How absurdly English you are. The English think that a checkbook can solve every problem in life. Why, my dear Arthur, I have very much more money than you have, and quite as much as Robert Chilton has got hold of. Money is not what I want. What do you want then, Mrs. Cheveley? Why don't you call me Laura? I don't like the name. You used to adore it. Yes, that's why. Come, sit. Arthur, you loved me once. Yes. And you asked me to be your wife. That was the natural result of my loving you. And you threw me over because you saw, or said you saw, poor old Lord Mortlake trying to have a violent flirtation with me in the conservatory at Tenby. I am under the impression that my lawyer settled that matter with you on certain terms, dictated by yourself. At that time I was poor. You were rich. Quite so. That is why you pretended to love me. Poor old Lord Mortlake, who had only two topics of conversation, his gout and his wife. I never could quite make out which of the two he was talking about. He used the most horrible language about them both. 
Well, it was silly, Arthur. Why, Lord Mortlake was never anything more to me than an amusement. One of those utterly tedious amusements one only finds at an English country house on an English country Sunday. I don't think anyone at all morally responsible for what he or she does at an English country house. Yes, I know lots of people who think that. I love you, Arthur. My dear Mrs. Cheveley, you have always been far too clever to know anything about love. I did love you. And you loved me. You know you loved me. And love is a very wonderful thing. I suppose that when a man has once loved a woman, he will do anything for her, except continue to love her. Yes, except that. I am tired of living abroad. I want to come back to London. I want to have a charming house here. I want to have a salon. If one could only teach the English how to talk and the Irish how to listen, society here would be quite civilised. Besides, I have arrived at the romantic stage. When I saw you last night at the Chilterns, I knew you were the only person I had ever cared for, if I had cared for anybody, Arthur. And so... On the morning of the day you marry me, I will give you Robert Chilton's letter. That is my offer. I will give it to you now if you promise to marry me. Now? Tomorrow. Are you really serious? Yes, quite serious. I should make you a very bad husband. I don't mind bad husbands. I have had two. They amuse me immensely. You mean that you amused yourself immensely, don't you? What do you know about my married life? Nothing. But I can read it like a book. What book? The Book of Numbers. Do you think it is quite charming of you to be so rude to a woman in your own house? In the case of a very fascinating woman, sex is a challenge, not a defence. I suppose that is meant for a compliment. My dear Arthur, women are never disarmed by compliments. Men always are. That is the difference between the two sexes. Women are never disarmed by anything, as far as I know them. Then you are going to allow your greatest friend, Robert Chilton, to be ruined, rather than marry someone who really has considerable attractions left. I thought you would have risen to some great height of self-sacrifice, Arthur. I think you should. And the rest of your life you could spend in contemplating your own perfections. Oh, I do that as it is. And self-sacrifice is a thing that should be put down by law. It is so demoralising to the people for whom one sacrifices oneself. They always go to the bad. As if anything could demoralise Robert Chilton. You seem to forget that I know his real character. What you know about him is not his real character. It was an act of folly done in his youth. Dishonourable, I admit. Shameful, I admit. Unworthy of him, I admit. And therefore, not his true character. <laughs> How you men stand up for each other. How you women war against each other. I only war against one woman, against Gertrude Chilton. I hate her. I hate her now more than ever. Because you have brought a real tragedy into her life, I suppose? Oh, there is only one real tragedy in a woman's life. 
the fact that her past is always her lover and her future invariably her husband. Lady Chilton knows nothing of the kind of life to which you are alluding. A woman who sighs in gloves is seven and three quarters never knows much about anything. You know Gertrude has always worn seven and three quarters. That is one of the reasons why there was never any moral sympathy between us. Well, Arthur, I suppose this romantic interview may be regarded as at an end. You admit it was romantic, don't you? For the privilege of being your wife, I was ready to surrender a great prize, the climax of my diplomatic career. You decline. Very well. If Robert doesn't uphold my Argentine scheme, I expose him. Voila tout. You mustn't do that. It would, it would be vile, horrible, infamous. Oh, don't use big words. They mean so little. It is a commercial transaction. That is all. There is no good mixing up sentimentality in it. I offer to sell Robert Chilton a certain thing. If he won't pay me my price, he will have to pay the world a greater price. There is no more to be said. I must go. Goodbye. Won't you shake hands? With you? No. Your transaction with Robert Chilton may pass as a loathsome commercial transaction of a loathsome commercial age. But you seem to have forgotten that you came here tonight to talk of love. You, whose lips desecrated the word love. You to whom the thing is a book closely sealed, went this afternoon to a house of one of the most noble and gentle women in the world to degrade her husband in her eyes, to try and kill her love for him, to put poison in her heart and bitterness in her life, to break her idol, and it may be spoil her soul. That I cannot forgive you. That was horrible. For that there can be no forgiveness. Arthur, you are unjust to me. Believe me, you are quite unjust to me. I didn't go to taunt Gertrude at all. I had no idea of doing anything of that kind when I entered. I called with Lady Markby simply to ask whether an ornament, a jewel, that I had lost somewhere last night had been found at the Chilterns. If you don't believe me, you can ask Lady Markby. She will tell you it is true. The scene that occurred happened after Lady Markby had left and was really forced on me by Gertrude's rudeness and sneers. I called, oh, a little out of malice if you like, but really to ask if a diamond brooch of mine had been found. That was the origin of the whole thing. A diamond snake brooch with a ruby? Yes. How did you know? Because it is found. In point of fact, I found it myself and stupidly forgot to tell the butler anything about it as I was leaving. It's in this drawer. This is the brooch, isn't it? Yes. I am so glad to have it back. It was a present. Won't you wear it? Certainly, if you pin it in. Why did you put it on as a bracelet? I never knew it could be worn as a bracelet. Really? No, but it looks very well on me as a bracelet, doesn't it? Yes, much better than when I saw it last. 
When did you see it last? Oh, ten years ago on Lady Berkshire, from whom you stole it. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean that you stole that ornament from my cousin, Mary Berkshire, to whom I gave it to when she was married. Suspicion fell on a wretched servant who was sent away in disgrace. I recognized it last night. I determined to say nothing about it till I had found the thief. I have found the thief now, and I have heard her own confession. It is not true. You know it's true. Why, thief is written across your face at this moment. I will deny the whole affair from beginning to end. I will say that I have never seen this wretched thing, that it was never in my possession. The drawback of stealing a thing, Mrs. Cheveley, is that one never knows how wonderful the thing that one steals is. You can't get that bracelet off unless you know where the spring is. And I see you don't know where the spring is. It is rather difficult to find. You brute. You coward. Oh, don't use big words. They mean so little. What are you going to do? I am going to ring for my servant. He is an admirable servant. Always comes in the moment one rings for him. When he comes, I will tell him to fetch the police. The police? What for? T tomorrow the Berkshires will prosecute you. That is what the police are for. Don't do that. I will do anything you want, anything in the world you want. Give me Robert Chilton's letter. Stop. Stop. Let me have time to think. Give me Robert Chilton's letter. I have not got it with me. I will give it to you tomorrow. You know you are lying. Give it to me at once. This is it? Yes. For so well-dressed a woman, Mrs. Cheveley, you have moments of admirable common sense. I congratulate you. Please get me a glass of water. Certainly. Thank you. Will you help me on with my cloak? With pleasure. Thanks. I am never going to try to harm Robert Chilton again. Fortunately, you have not the chance, Mrs. Cheveley. Well, if even I had the chance, I wouldn't. On the contrary, I am going to render him a great service. I am charmed to hear it. It is a reformation. Yes. I can't bear so upright a gentleman, so honourable an English gentleman, being so shamefully deceived and so... Well? I find that, somehow, Gertrude Chilton's dying speech and confession has strayed into my pocket. What do you mean? I mean that I am going to send Robert Chilton the love letter his wife wrote to you tonight. Love letter? <laughs> I want you. I trust you. I am coming to you, Gertrude. You wretched woman, must you always be thieving? Give me back that letter. I'll take it from you by force. You shall not leave this room till I have got it. Lord Goring merely rang that you should show me out. Good night, Lord Goring.
An Ideal Husband concludes in Act 4. This production of An Ideal Husband featured Andrew Hall as Sir Robert Chiltern, Grant Ritchie as Lord Goring, Eleanor McMahon as Mrs Cheveley, and John McQueen as Lord Caversham. This act also featured James Hay as Thips and Finlay Cassie as Harold. This has been an audio presentation of Oscar Wilde's play An Ideal Husband from Liquid Picnic Productions. Directed by John McQueen and Harris Williamson. Produced by Finlay Cassie and edited by the Liquid Picnic team. The sound effects and music used was either specifically recorded or in the public domain. Full attributions and credits can be found at liquidpicnicproductions.com. Our supervising producers on this project were John McQueen and Harris Williamson. James Hay, Holly Clark and Joe Simpson are executive producers for Liquid Picnic Productions. The production team would like to thank Edinburgh Napier University. The credits were read by James Hay. Make sure to subscribe to us in your podcast player of choice so you don't miss the rest of An Ideal Husband. For more information about Liquid Picnic, visit our website and to keep up to date with us, why not follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You've been listening to a Liquid Picnic production. Thank <laughs> you.